0: Thank mm-hmm. Okay, let's reconvene. Come on back in. Get settled. Okay, let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 16. So we finally made it to the end of the judgments of God. So praise God for that. We've Got a couple of more chapters that sort of uh, highlight that, chapter 17 and 18, and then chapter 19 we start to get to the good stuff. Revelation chapter 16, I'd like to read that for you this morning if you'll follow along with me as we consider God's word together. Revelation chapter 16 begins, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man. And every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, And his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gather them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God, to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, every hailstone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. Lord, we trust that you will add your blessing and your understanding to the reading of your word. Lord, teach us this morning, speak to us, quicken us, make us willing to receive and to hear. Lord, let us not be like these hard-hearted people who were unwilling to receive and to repent when these things began to happen and they rebelled and judged uh, you, Lord. They, They shook their fist at you, as it were. But Lord, let us be people who have tender and soft hearts, who can hear and receive the things of the Spirit of God this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as we come to this last chapter here, let me just start with a little introduction. You've probably heard of the maxim of the real estate agent, which is location, location, location. And when we talk about the scriptures, when we're reading the Bible, for us, it's about context, context, context. So keep in mind this morning as we read the Scriptures, and any time that you may get a little misled or feel a little lost, to look at the context of the verses in the chapter, the chapter in the book, and the book in the context of the larger setting of the Scriptures themselves. This morning as we go into chapter 16, these final judgments of God that are being poured out upon the earth, remember the journey we've been on, that starting in chapter 6, the seven-sealed scroll was opened by the Lamb of God. And when they got to the sixth seal, there was a pause for a period of time. Then the seventh seal was opened. And when the seventh seal was opened, the seventh seal cascaded seven trumpet judgments. And then those seven trumpet judgments were blown and, and poured out upon the earth, as it were, And then when we got to the sixth trumpet, again, there was a pause. And then we got to the seventh trumpet, and the seventh trumpet cascaded now uh, chapter 16 here, which is the bowl or the vile judgments, as it's sometimes referred to. And to keep this in context, to keep this in perspective, it's been referred to a couple of times in this chapter as we read it, but let me remind you this morning to ground ourselves Chapter 16, to be properly understood, must be seen in light of God's eternal and perfect character, which is what? God's holiness, God's righteousness, God's justice, God's divine judgment, and the wrath of God. We love God's mercy, we love God's grace, we love God's love, and those are all part of His perfectly balanced nature and character. But his, his nature and his character are balanced with holiness, righteousness, justice, judgment, and wrath. And so this chapter has to be seen in the context of understanding that God is perfect in all of his ways. And while God does not desire for any to perish, while God does not desire for any to be judged, while God himself does not send men to hell, we send ourselves by rejecting the love and the grace and the mercy of God. We need to understand this morning as we go through here and as God's wrath is poured out on a sinful and an unbelieving world in fullest measure, that the responsibility rests on us as mankind to respond to the outpouring of the love and the grace and the mercy of God. At the beginning of this book in chapter 1, as we began to look at it, uh, back in the beginning, it was we were said back in chapter we were told back in chapter one that God was revealing these things which must shortly take place. And as we looked at that word, it means in relative terms not so much as we think, like shortly after you know our period of time here today we're going to go have lunch, but more so a rapid-fire succession that once it begins to happen, it happens in quick succession to one another. And so although it may seem like for these last number of weeks as we've gone through starting in chapter 6, looking at the, the breaking of the seals and, the breaking, and then the blowing of the trumpets and now coming to this place today of the pouring out of the bowl judgments, that a three-and-a-half-year per- period of time as these things begin to be poured out in rapid-fire succession, when you're living in that time, when you're undergoing severe trauma, when you're undergoing severe judgment and chastening from God... It will seem like an eternity, and you know how it is when we get sick, right? If we get sick for a few days with the flu and we're down on the bed, you know, maybe three days and just things aren't good, we feel like it's never going to end. Now imagine in the context of what we study today of how severe these things are as God is pouring out his judgment upon a sinful and unbelieving world, how this must feel to those people who are undergoing these things. I would commend to your reading this morning for context as we get into this study, Second Peter chapter three, and we'll just say the whole chapter. But let me just read some of it to you. Scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts, saying, Where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. And it goes on to talk about uh, remembering that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then he goes on to say, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And as we come to the end of this chapter, as we come to this uh, this thing called Armageddon, which we'll talk about as we get toward the end this morning, remember that the day of the Lord, the time of, Of Jacob's trouble the time of God's judgment is now as we read chapter 16 being poured out upon the earth and this is God's divine judgment that he foretold since the beginning of creation would happen upon sin and upon sinful man and God poured out his wrath one day on Mount Calvary on the cross of Jesus Christ and if we accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and we believe in Jesus and we repent and we come and turn to God from our sinful and our wicked ways, then the wrath of God has already been poured out on Jesus Christ on our behalf. But if we reject God's loving, gracious, merciful, sacrificial Son, then God's wrath will be poured out on us. And that is the context of chapter 16. So as we go to verse 1, we read, about these loathsome sores, then I heard verse 1, a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. It's interesting as we study chapter 16, many commentators have subtitled this or dubbed it the great chapter, great in in quotations. The word, the Greek word for great, mega, is used 11 times in this chapter in verse 1 a loud voice is a great voice in uh, verse 9 a great or fierce heat in verse 12 the great river Euphrates In verse 14 the great day of God Almighty in verse 17 a loud or a great voice in verse 18 a great earthquake is mentioned twice in verse 19 the great city and Babylon the great verse 21 great hailstones and also in verse 21 the plague that was exceedingly great or severe so this is the great chapter and whenever superlatives are used like this great or mega obviously god is making a point just as when he says truly truly or verily verily or holy 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 whenever the scriptures tell us these things it is there for emphasis And so this word great or mega is used 11 times here to emphasize to us how severe, how great, how awesome this time will be when God is pouring out his wrath upon the face of planet earth and more specifically upon those people who have rejected him. In verse 2 it says, So the first went, the first angel, and poured out his bowl upon the earth And a foul and loathsome sore came upon men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Remember earlier when we talked about 666 and we talked about the mark of the beast, that the angels warned, do not take the mark of the beast. Accept Jesus Christ, turn from your sin and repent. But for all those who took the mark of the beast, it says here, Now you know why, when God warns us that we should heed the voice of God. Here it says that all those who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image, these foul and loathsome sores came upon them. Now this word here used for these foul and loathsome sores describes a sore of the worst kind. If you've ever seen it or experienced it yourself, and I pray that you haven't, but this is the kind of sore that is an open wound, a weeping wound, a pussy sore that has all sorts of ugly gook coming out of it. And if you've ever experienced anything like that, you know it's just its just so unpleasant. But God pours out this first bowl of wrath upon these people who took the mark of the beast and who became Satan worshipers, and he judges them through this means of these foul and loathsome sores, which, as you may recall back when God was judging Egypt during the time of Pharaoh. This is the sixth plague or parallel to the sixth plague of Egypt. So only those who have submitted to the beast and those who have rejected the warning that God had given them will experience this judgment. As we go through this and we read about these different plagues and bowls that are given here in chapter 16, there's a couple of points to be made. As we go back to the seals being broken when Jesus was breaking the seals on the scroll and then when the seventh seal was broken and the seven trumpets were cascaded out of that seventh seal, remember as we went through those, often we read things like, you know, one-third of this was judged, you know, a third of the sea or a third of the rivers or a third of the population. As we come to chapter 16, God is holding nothing back. Everything and everyone except any believers who are left on the earth during that time, tribulation saints, everyone and everything is being judged uh, without discrimination. In chapter 16, the wrath and the fullness of God's judgment is being poured out upon all of the remaining mankind, especially those who worship Satan, who worship the beast. So we see here in verse 3, Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. In the previous judgments, we saw that, again, a portion of the sea creatures had died. Here, every living creature in the sea died, and this is followed closely by bowl number three in verse four. Then the angel, the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. This parallels the first plague in Egypt where God turned the waters, the rivers, the lakes, the streams in Egypt to blood. Here, God completely and totally transforms the seas and all of the fresh water sources into blood. And God does this so that they understand that he is sovereign over all things, over all affairs of mankind. The little things we take for granted in life, such as water... God has his finger on the very source of the water that we drink. And we think sometimes about, you know, where does our water come from? If you have a well, it comes from a well. If it comes, you know, public water, then it comes from wherever that comes from. But God himself has his finger on it. God controls these things. God controls the water that comes out of your faucet. How often do we think like that? And here, God is making it very plain by first afflicting the people who believe in the beast with sores, these open, ugly, pussy wounds, and then pouring out his bowl on the sea and on the uh, water supply, that everything is under the control of God. One commentator said it this way, the transforming of the world's seas and uh, rivers into putrid pools of stinking death will be graphic testimony to the wickedness of man. We're only three into this, and God is making it plain that he is judging mankind relentlessly. In verse 5, And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, declaring the righteousness of God. God is perfectly righteous to do these things. God is in control of these things. These are his to do with as he pleases. Remember, he is the one who spoke the world into existence. He is the one, as we read the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, he is the one who said, uh, let the, the firmament come into existence. Let the waters come into existence. Let there be a separation. Let there be night and let there be day. Let there be a sun. Let there be a moon. God did these things. And so it is God's to do with as he pleases. And then we are told that God created mankind. And mankind is really God's to do with as he pleases. But God has always conducted himself in a holy and a righteous way. God has always conducted himself in a merciful way toward man. Here's what it says in verse 6. For they, these people that God is now judging, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, For it is their just due. As we think about people who preach the gospel, as we think about ourselves, even if you've ever been ridiculed for your faith, however mild or harsh that it might be, understand that God is the one who has spoken these words in Scripture that vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord, I will repay. And so we don't have to ever take matters into our own hands. If someone ridicules us and reviles us because of our faith, they have to deal with God. They have to deal with our Heavenly Father. And you know, we can we can talk smack all we want to people, and even if we're capable of backing it up, nothing will ever stand to what God can and will do to the people who harm His people. Remember, Jesus told us all the way back in the Beatitudes, as He was had come to earth to to lovingly instruct us and to draw us to God and to point us to the Father. He said, if they hate you, understand it's because they hated me. If they revile you, understand that they are really reviling me in you. And so now on this day, as God is pouring out these bowls of wrath, uh, we're being told here that they are being given their just due. And because the blood of the saints and the prophets were shed by sinful men who hated God, that God will now bring their blood back upon their head. One person expressed it this way, in God's government, the punishment fits the crime. Pharaoh tried to drown the Jewish boy babies, but it was his own army that eventually drowned in the Red Sea. Haman planned to hang Mordecai on gallows uh, to exterminate the Jews in the book of Esther, but he himself was hanged on the very gallows that he had built, and his family was exterminated. King Saul refused to obey God and to slay the Amalekites, so he was slain by an Amalekite. The angel declares that because evil unbelievers have killed God's people, he is righteous in cursing them with blood to drink. Even as believers are worthy of rest and reward, so the evil are worthy of divine chastening and judgment. God is perfectly just in all his ways. In verse 7, it says, And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God, almighty, true, and righteous are your judgments. Here the angel putting in context for us in these few verses the holiness, the righteousness, the purity, the justice of God. And all of that before bowl number 4, which is found in verse 8. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, And power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Previously, part of the sun had been dimmed back in Revelation chapter 8, but now the heat of the sun is being increased. God is, as it were, putting a a divine magnifying glass between the sun and the earth, and he is now scorching men with fire. And this is, of course, but a foretaste of what it will be like to burn in everlasting hell and judgment and damnation, where God condemns not only Satan and his angels, but all of those who have rejected Jesus Christ. And it says here in verse 9, for us not to miss... And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. William Newell said this, if men are not won by grace, they will never be won. If men are not won by grace, they will never be won. In this situation, as extreme as it is, it would seem that God is still giving men an opportunity to repent. Even though we are at the, we're not at the great white throne judgment yet, which is coming, but we are pretty close. We're one step away. And God is pouring out his wrath upon sinful and unbelieving men. And it says here, and they did not repent and give him glory. Now let me stop and draw a parallel for us. While this is for that time for those people, what can we learn from this? What happens when God releases Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 12 in our lives? If you don't know what that is, here's what it talks about. That chapter talks about the discipline of the Lord coming into our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that every time we get sick, we lift up the rock and think I'm being judged by divine judgment, or every time something hard and difficult comes into my life, that it's because God is judging me. That's not true. Certainly God allows just the outworking of sin and, and just the difficulties of life to come into our lives as trials and things to, to prune us and to cause us to seek the Lord and to press into Him. But certainly there are times that God will allow things to come into our lives as a consequence of our sin. And as He allows those things to come, and hopefully they're far and few in between, but if He does, don't you think that when God allows that, that, that's for us to turn to Him and to repent of our sin and to say, I'm sorry, Lord. And I turn back to you and I'm in this situation, not because you did something to me and not because they, whoever the proverbial they is, but because I did it to me. I was reading the other day in Acts chapter 26 or 7, something like that. It was near the end of Paul's journey. His as he's being sent to Rome, and it was so stark, it was so apparent to me as, we, as just reading that, that as you read where, where Paul said, you know, and an angel appeared to him at night and said, you know, not everyone on the ship will be lost and God will get us to shore, and they landed on the island of Malta. And as I read that, the theme that developed in my mind reading it was, there was a series of bad decisions made by those people who refused to listen to Paul. God had given Paul divine wisdom and insight and said, I don't think we should do this. I don't think we should go on that ship on that journey. Uh, We shouldn't, you know, try to do this. We should wait in winter before we try to go out and cross the ocean. And they were getting too close to the line when all the winter storms would come. But they said, no, we got to get there. We're going to put our our foot on the gas pedal and go. And the entire ship was destroyed, but God graciously spared them uh, because Paul was on the ship. You know, one righteous man. And all of those things happened to them because they made bad decisions. And these things can come into our lives, these times of trial and even judgment, if you will, because we make bad decisions because we rebel against God. And we don't listen to God's love, we don't listen to God's wisdom, we don't listen to wise biblical counsel. So when these things come into our life as uh, spoken here in Revelation sixteen nine. I hope these words will echo in your heart and mind. They did not repent and give him glory. Not that we would do that, but that we would repent, that we would give God glory, and that we would come to our senses when these things happen in our lives. Verse 10, bowl number five. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. God now targets specifically the throne of the beast. And I would understand this. Remember, we looked back, uh, two beasts were revealed. There's Satan, who is the great dragon. Then there was the first beast who rose up out of the sea, and that was the Antichrist. And there was the second beast who rose up from the land, and that beast was the false prophet. I would understand this to be uh, the beast being the Antichrist, and the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, because he has a, an earthly throne somewhere, whether it be in Babylon or Rome or wherever we determine that might be, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. Imagine you happen to live in the bad neighborhood near the palace where the Antichrist is reigning. And this is being poured out and the entire kingdom where the Antichrist lives and reigns became full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. Because of the pain of what? Because of this, this, the pain of the, the boils and the sores, maybe. But it would seem to me to imply here that the darkness, the intense darkness that God gives them brings a sense of incredible pain into their lives. And I think we should never underestimate the power that darkness can have on a lost soul. And how much pain people can be in who do not know Christ and who are walking in darkness. And that God would condition our hearts to be pitiful and compassionate toward those who are living in darkness. So this darkness is very similar to both the fifth trumpet and the ninth plague in the the land of Egypt, where God poured out darkness upon the land of Pharaoh. And so God brings darkness upon the Antichrist and upon his throne. And he wants them to know that apart from him, there is nothing but darkness. Remember, God is light and in him dwells no darkness at all. And it says in verse 11, as a part of this, they blasphemed the God of heaven Because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. This is the last time, the last reference in the book of Revelation to a lack of repentance from men. And that would seem to suggest to us that from this point forward, there's no more opportunity for repentance of man. What a sad thing to be said. And yet here they are as God continues to pour out the intensity of these judgments and yet their heart continues to harden. Have you ever seen that in a person who's going through a hard time, an unbeliever? And God seems to be turning up the heat and allowing things to get more difficult in their lives. And you can see it as a believer looking into their eyes and you recognize it and you're praying for them. God, I pray that their, their eyes would be open and that their heart would be softened and that they would see and hear and understand before it's too late. But then you see things become harder. And you see them become harder. And you see them become more vile. And you see them become more intense in their persecution of God and everything that relates to the righteousness of God. This is where those people are headed unless they repent and unless they turn. Where they will blaspheme the God of heaven. And they will not repent of their deeds. And ultimately what this is saying by implication is that they will blame God. For everything in their lives. Have you ever known someone with a victim mentality? Have you ever known someone with that mentality who shakes their fist at God and says, God, it's your fault that I'm in this situation? With no response whatsoever of their own culpability in the situation? With no realization of the fact that you might be in that situation because you made a series of decisions that took you to this point? And so God, here, reinforcing to mankind you're here because of your continual rejection of me the scriptures are so clear i mean we could have just a bible study on how merciful god has been and how he has been so gracious in proclaiming his gospel to people there's this verse in the book of romans that says let god be true and every man a liar god has Gone way beyond what is reasonable to communicate his love and his grace and his mercy to mankind. On that day, when we stand before God, whether believer or unbeliever, no one will be able to stand before him and say, I didn't know. No one will be able to stand before him and say, I never had an opportunity to because God will say yes and he will play it back and he will show us yes you did on this occasion and this occasion and this occasion i showed you i gave it to you i loved you i think sometimes when i come to my senses at the end of you know something that i've been doing or maybe i was just blind to when god reveals to me i spoke to you through the words of this song I spoke to you through the scriptures. I spoke to you through that brother or sister whom you interacted with who spoke a word to you and you didn't hear it because it fell on deaf ears. You see, God is so gracious and merciful. Think about social media. Most of us have, you know, if you're on social media, you have uh, believing friends. I mean, people are posting Bible verses all the time, aren't they? God is constantly speaking. And as long as there is a means and a method, God will speak until he determines that he will speak no longer. And for these people, they come to the time in their life when he is no longer speaking to them, but their hearts are hardened and it is shut off and they are no longer in a place where they can receive anything from God. One commentator said this, the scriptures plainly refute the notion that evil people will quickly repent when faced with catastrophic warnings of judgment. When confronted with the righteous judgment of God, their blasphemy is deepened and their evil purpose is only accentuated. You remember the story in Luke 16 where the rich man and Lazarus and after they had died and gone to the afterworld and now they're in different places and everything's flip-flopped around. And Remember the rich man as he's being tormented on the other side of the great chasm says, Lord, please send somebody back to tell my family an angel, somebody, raised somebody from the dead, and they said, they have the word of God, they have the law, they have Moses. If they will not receive that, they're not gonna receive something miraculous. So God enforcing here the fact that when men's hearts become hard, when men live in darkness, when we are blind to the things of God, then great is that darkness. In verse 12, bowl number six, then the, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Now, these bowls shift at this point. The first five bowls have been poured out upon men, upon unbelieving men, upon the beast, upon those who have taken the mark of the beast, and now... He pours out a bowl on the great river Euphrates, that great river that demarcates the east from the west, as it were. And as he dries up this river, it says he does so so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Let me just read this to you. There's been endless speculation about the kings of the east, with many expositors trying to relate them to some contemporary leaders of their generation. A survey of 100 commentaries of the book of Revelation reveals at least 50 interpretations of the identity of the kings of the East. The simplest and best explanation, however, is that this refers to kings or rulers from the Orient or the East who will participate in the final world war in the light of the context of this passage indicating the near approach of the second coming of Christ and the contemporary world situation in which the Orient today contains a large portion of the world's population with tremendous military potential. Any interpretation other than a literal one does not make sense. One commentator says this is is the only understanding of these words which will suit the context and the requirement of this series of prophecies. So as we try to figure out what does it mean, these people coming from the east, if you look on a map and you just figure out who's east of the Euphrates, Euphrates, there's a whole host of people uh, east of the Euphrates. So trying to sort of sensationalize that and contextualize it with the generation I'm living in may or may not make sense, but on the day when this bowl is poured out and the way is prepared for the Battle of Armageddon to begin... God will make it plain on that day who the kings of the east are that are coming in to be called to the valley of Jezreel for this final battle. Continuing on, looking at verse 13, let's make some more sense of this. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So remember all the way back again in um, Pharaoh's territory, Exodus chapter 8, the second plague was the plague of frogs, and let me just read this to you. God had threatened a plague of frogs for a specific reason. The Egyptian goddess Hecht was always pictured with the head of a frog, and for this reason, frogs were considered sacred and could not be killed. God will show the Egyptians the foolishness of a frog god. Egyptians worshipped the frog as a female goddess because frogs were common around the Nile, because they reproduced rapidly, and because being amphibians, they are part of two worlds, creatures of both land and water. So that was the superstition behind frogs. And now God, pulling forward from the judgment on Pharaoh, the second plague, now says, I'm sending three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, who is Satan, out of the mouth of the beast, who is the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Now, why does he do that? Verse 14, For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So what does God do? He sends three evil, deceiving spirits out through the mouth of this unholy trinity, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, to convince the kings of the world, in particular the kings of the east, to come to the valley of Jezreel, to the valley of Megiddo, to come and to gather for a great battle. Now, it's interesting as we read this here, remember, nothing is ever by accident. See verse 15. Okay, right in the middle of this, Jesus interjects something for us. And if you have a red letter Bible, I assume it's in red, Revelation 16:15. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Why in the middle of the pouring out of the wrath of God, the seven last bowls, why does Jesus interject this statement? And I think he wants all of us to know who are believers reading this. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Remember all the way back in the seven letters to the seven churches, the letter to the church of Sardis, Jesus said a very similar thing. In 2 Peter 3.10 and 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 4, all of these things are referencing the fact that Jesus says, that the Lord says, I will come as a thief. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Jesus says, behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments. As I read this, the thing that immediately jumps off the page to me is Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins. Now, if you haven't read that recently, go read it. And here's what happens. In Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus is speaking of this day. He's speaking of the time of the end. And he gives the parable of the ten virgins in a context of the fact that the end of the world is coming. And in that day, uh, he, as he gives the parable, remember there's five vir- ten virgins, five who are, are wise and they've trimmed their wicks and they have oil in their lamps. And then five who do not. They aren't wise. And then as they hear the procession is beginning from down the street, that the bridegroom is coming, the noise is being made, it's about to happen. They go, oh, my gosh, we don't have any oil. Quick, share your oil with us. Be a good neighbor. And they said, no, then there won't be enough for us. You should have prepared. Maybe you can quickly run out, wake somebody up, and buy some oil. So while they're gone to do what they should have already done, the bridegroom comes the, the reception begins and they close the door and then they come back and they say, oh, let us in, we have some oil now. And they said, "No, nope, it's too late. You can't come in, you weren't ready. So when this phrase here in, in verse, six, verse 15, behold, I'm coming as a thief, blessed is he who watches. And as we've gone through the gospels, every time we see Jesus talking about blessed is he who watches, this talks about both an awareness and prayer watching and waiting in prayer and it talks about that expectancy that Jesus is coming back that expectancy that God might call upon us at any moment did you ever have a, a class when you were in school and that that teacher that annoying teacher who would always call upon you know randomly call upon people and everybody had to be ready And you might slink in late and sit in the back row hoping that they don't notice you and that kind of thing and hoping that they won't call upon you. But then they call upon you and you're not ready. This is way worse than that. (laughs) The embarrassment that we might feel in that moment in the class is nothing compared to this. Because how would it be to be a part of the five virgins in that parable who weren't ready? And who come back and knock on the door and say, Let me in. And they say, No, you had your opportunity. Blessed is he who watches. So there's an awareness, there's a readiness, there's a sense of anticipation, and keeps his garments. Whenever that issue of garments is talked about in the Bible, in the old or the new testament, it's always talking about how we live our lives. And are are our garments stained with sin? or our garments washed in the blood of the Lamb. And it says as it ends verse 15 there, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So what he's saying is this, if we're watching, if we're keeping ourselves, if we're ready, if we're seeking the Lord, if we're prepared, then we will not be naked and we will not be filled with shame at the coming of the Lord. And I think you could apply this either to the rapture of the church for where we are in time now, but in the context here, the next prophetic event after the battle of Armageddon is the Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming of Christ. And so being ready, and the idea is being ready because Jesus is coming in either context, at any any point in history, whether we're on this side of both the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ, or we're beyond the rapture of the church and we're in the time of the tribulation, now looking forward to the second coming of Christ, the admonition is the same. Be ready, watch, pray, don't allow yourself to be caught off guard. Uh, So many times Jesus said this, Matthew 24, verse 43, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect... Uh, Luke chapter 12, but know this, that if the master of the house had known, same thing, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. And we find this repeated over and over in the scriptures. So now in the middle of these two verses here, we come back to 16, and it says, and they gathered them together, that's these evil spirits, these frog spirits, they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. It's interesting. We often speak of the Battle of Armageddon, but and nowhere in the Bible is that spoken of but right here. And if you look for the word Armageddon, it's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. And it's interesting, as you think about this, that with all of the sensationalism that's gone on around the Battle of Armageddon, with all the movies that have been made, and all of the ways people see this playing out, and even those... Bible teachers who take this and, you know, kind of explode it to what it's going to look like in terms of, you know, the tanks and now nuclear war and all of that, all of which are possible. It's all built on speculation. So let's just look at what the Bible tells us this morning and what what can we know about this thing called uh, Armageddon, which is first and foremost a place. The name Armageddon comes from two Hebrew words, Har Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo. The word Megiddo means place of troops or a place of slaughter. It is also called the plain of Esdraelon and the valley of Jezreel. The area is about 14 miles wide and 20 miles long. So that's the place. I don't know if any of you have seen pictures of it. I've only been there once back in 2000 when I had the great privilege to go to the land of Israel. And I remember that day so succinctly as we were on the bus and we topped the hill and as we did, the person came over the loudspeaker and said, this is the Valley of Megiddo. And as your eyes see that and you immediately think about all these things, it is like, wow. And you begin to think about the great battle that will take place there. The details of which we're not told. And we can look at Zechariah 14 and that gives us some indication, we believe, as to what the, uh, the Battle of Armageddon will be like. But here's what we know about that day. Uh, In Isaiah 26, verse 20, the wrath of the Lord is the term that's used, we believe, in that passage to refer to this battle. In Ezekiel 38, the fury of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 2, the terror of the Lord. In Isaiah 35, the vengeance of God. In Micah chapter 4, the harvest of judgment. In Isaiah 63, the grapes of wrath. In Ezekiel 39, the great supper of God. These are all phrases that are used in the Old Testament to refer to the time of this battle. So this battle, whatever it's going to be and however it's going to be worked out, will be intense. It will be something such as the world has never seen. But now as that the stage has been set and God has used these evil frog spirits to go out into the world and to call the kings of the earth to this battle, to this place of of final skirmish, in verse 17... Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. So God speaks, the voice of God speaks from the temple of heaven, from the very throne and says, It is done. Now this is not to be confused with uh, the voice of Jesus when he died on the cross and said, It is finished. It's not the same language, words, anything like that has a completely different meaning. But here we understand, back in Ephesians chapter 2, that Satan is referred to as the prince of the power of the air, and the seventh angel here is pouring out his bowl into the air, and so Satan is now, we believe, being judged finally. His entire system is about to be judged, the religious system, the harlotry of Uh, The nation of Israel, the harlotry that, that Satan has brought into the world through his false prophet, which is coming up in chapters 17 and 18, is all going to be brought to a point of judgment. And then it says in verse 18, "...and there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth." And so as this this last bowl is being poured out into the air and God is saying, it is done. The judgment of the wrath of God being poured out upon sinful and unbelieving man on the earth is done. This great earthquake happens and the earth is shaken. An earthquake such as has never occurred in all of the history of mankind. Now, verse 19, the great city was divided, and we believe this is referring to Jerusalem, the great city was divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Uh, It's possible that this great city could be referring to Babylon or wherever the throne of the Antichrist is. It's also possible that this is referring to the city of Jerusalem. Not entirely clear Uh, Most believe that that is uh, Jerusalem, but it could be Babylon. Then every island, verse 20, fled away, and the mountains were not found. When this earthquake happens, this says every island. So everything that's an island goes away. No more islands, only mainland. That will be incredible when God does that. And verse 21, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, Each hailstone about the weight of a talent, a talent being roughly 100 pounds. People have some different ideas. Is it 80? Is it 75? Is it 114 pounds? It's roughly 100 pounds. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail since that plague was exceedingly great. Now in this last plague of God pouring out his wrath into the air, it says that hailstone's the size of a 100-pound something, 100-pound basketballs, whatever they might be, falls from the earth, but it says that these fall specifically on men. We don't tend to see a lot of hailstorms here in the northeast, but if you've ever been in a place or you've ever experienced hail, it can be a pretty frightening thing. I've been into some some pretty crazy storms, especially if you get out in the Midwest or you see the hailstorms that are the size of, say, golf balls and it just sounds like you know the world's coming apart now imagine a hundred pound hailstone falling on men and crushing them and killing them this is how radical the judgment of god becomes in this last plague and it says men blasphemed god because of the plague of hail since that plague was exceedingly great now as we've been studying chapter 16 here and we've come to the last verse Remember, we've seen a number of times in this passage the idea that men have hardened their hearts, that they've not repented, and that they've blasphemed against God. Now, what is blasphemy? Blasphemy in the strictest sense means to slander, to speak lightly of, or profanely of sacred things. Blasphemy blasphemy can mean to vilify, to speak um, uh, in such a way that you are defaming or railing upon or reviling something that is holy. The word revile can mean uh, abuse, scorn, condemn, censure, despise, berate, and disparage. So what is being said here is that men were speaking in this way about God. Have you ever heard anyone speak in this way about God? I certainly have. Where they they shake their fist at God, they speak to God in an unholy and irreverent way, they say, you know, you know, if God were so righteous, if God were so holy, and they levy their judgment against God. And God looks at this as blasphemy. Now let me read to you a passage out of Leviticus 24. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take outside the camp him who is cursed, and then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Do you get the picture of what God is doing here? He is stoning for blasphemy. He is allowing a 100-pound hailstones to fall and to rain upon the heads and the hearts and the lives of those people who have rejected him and blasphemed him for the last time. God himself brings a divine stoning upon man. How incredible is that? How awesome is that? This hail from God is the equivalent of God himself stoning those who would blaspheme his name. I'll come back to what I said at the beginning. The holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God, the judgment of God. Let God be true and every man a liar. Now as we go forward and we look at chapter 17 and 18 where God now brings down Babylon and the the religious system and the economic system as we've said often, and Pastor Mitch said it a couple of weeks ago, God will often zoom out, give us a picture, and then zoom back in and give us some details and those kinds of things. So chapters 17 and 18, read ahead, are sort of a further playing out of what's happened with these seven bowls of wrath. And then as we come to 19, we find four hallelujahs. The only place in Scripture where hallelujah is mentioned four times. And so we're looking forward to what's coming in 19. We still have 17 and 18 to go. But God is wrapping it up now. He's putting a bow on it, so to speak. And he's putting to bed, he's putting to rest the judgment of evil and sin and the blasphemy of man. And he's now bringing us to that place in time where he is going to rule and reign supreme over all of us. Amen. Lord, we love you this morning. Thank you for your uh, speaking to us so clearly and so plainly. And Lord, may we not be like these people who would harden their hearts against you and not repent. And Lord, instead their hearts were hardened even more and they blasphemed and they spoke against you in an even greater way. And Lord, as we think about our friends and our family and our neighbors who don't know you, who live in darkness, Lord, we don't want to see them in this situation on that day having your wrath poured out upon them in this manner. So Lord, we pray for them right now. Uh, and Lord, I know in, in, in every one of our hearts and our minds, Lord, we pray for those people who don't know you. We pray, Lord Jesus, while we, while we pray, come quickly. We also pray, Lord, be merciful and allow them to come to know Christ and to repent of their sin and to turn to you, the one true and the living God, and to turn from the darkness and the falsehood and the pride and the self-centeredness and the selfishness, and may they turn to you, God, we pray. Lord, for those of us as uh, your children who maybe we've been walking and our garments are defiled, uh, may that verse written in red this morning be written upon our heart. May we watch for you diligently. May we repent. May we get our lives right. And may we be seeking and hastening the, the coming of the day of the Lord by how we live. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Shall we stand and worship?
1: grace of our Lord be with you now and always. May you stay blameless till he comes. May the love of our Lord be with you now and always. May you stay blameless till he comes. May the grace of our Lord be with you. Now and always May you stay Blameless till He comes May the love Of our Lord be with you Now and always May you stay Blameless till He comes May the love Of our Lord be with you Now and always May you stay Blameless till he comes, blameless till he
0: comes, blameless till he comes. Lord, may we walk in all your ways, keep short accounts with you.